counted among the outlaws. He said, come, follow me. People from all walks of life since have been becoming outlaws. Chris, I was reading Galatians 2, and I get, which, you know, sometimes read stuff a hundred times, and I get to the part where he, or excuse me, Paul, let me, let me back up a little bit for those who are listening that, you know, I can't just jump in. Everyone knows Galatians too, right? So Paul, the apostle Paul, uh, was not original disciple and he was actually a persecutor of the church, uh, arresting, uh, involved in killing Christians and needing to put down this cult because it was disrespecting God and, uh, you know, Judaism. It kind of made sense in his perspective. He was a high level scholar in Judaism, it was very passionate about putting this group down, and he has a divine encounter with a risen Christ, who says, uh, "Why are you persecuting me?" You know. Long story short, he realizes this is Judaism. This isn't a cult. This is the fulfillment of everything he had been learning and living, and didn't see it. So surprisingly, he doesn't go right to Jerusalem and meet the disciples and say, hey, here's what happened. He goes to like Arabia, and he's preaching for about three years, and uh, you know, then he comes back to Jerusalem and meets him. Then it's like another 14 years later. Now we're up to like Galatians. And he comes back because of controversy, stirring in that he's preaching to what was called the Gentiles, which is now, Gentiles are predominantly Christian now, which would be me, maybe you, I guess, us. But people who are outside of Judaism, and... uh People are getting mad at him. Some people are still mad at Paul's teachings. That's not a new thing, but really mad then that he was not having new converts to Christianity practice Judaism customs, that maybe you need to go to Moses, then Jesus kind of situation. So he goes to Jerusalem. He has what I think is one of the most important meetings in world history with three of the major disciples, apostles, and says, hey, here's what I'm preaching. Does it line up with what you're doing? It's a big deal. He leaves and says, they added nothing to my teaching. They gave me the right hand of fellowship, not the left foot of fellowship, as we call like the negative. But they said, you're in, you're on board. We're 100% in sync. And then this is what uh, got me emailing you. Is, um, it made me think of you. He says, the only thing they asked is that I remember the poor. And I thought, you know what? It sounds like a side comment you could just go after, but this is like a very, very important meeting. They go over the doctrines of the faith. What does it mean to be, to be a Christian, to have a relationship with God? What are those doctrines? But they're in complete agreement that moving forward with this new faith and teaching, we can't forget the poor. And that just really struck me because... This isn't judging the church or anything, and most churches have uh, ways to, oh, you know, programs uh, more than others in helping the uh, the less fortunate. But it seems to me that that is a pillar of something that maybe needs to be a little stronger. And it just struck me as here's a guy, and now I'm going to introduce people to you, and then hand it over to you. So I have with me Chris Lambert here. Uh, CEO of Life Remodeled, and who Chris is, 
I actually have a little information here. Uh, he was listed in Crane's 40 Under 40, Building and Design and Construction 40 Under 40, and Smart Business Dealer, Maker of the Year, excuse me. Undergraduate at Indiana University and Kelly School of Business, he has a Master of Divinity at Fuller Theological Seminary, Doctor of Ministry from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and had fundraising training from Harvard University. So you're no dumb-dumb, Chris. That's what I just read there. Uh, the jury's still out. <laughs> On top of all of that, I told you this before, but you're seriously the only guy you know that can truly pull off like a multi-pattern pink flamingo shirt and just rock it. I saw you wear one. I don't know what it was. It was way back when you had like... That's funny, man. I, I actually almost wore that shirt today. I was <laughs> so close. Awesome. That would have been awesome. And uh, so he's currently this you know, life remodeled, which he can tell you more about, but it's a nonprofit with the goal of revitalizing Detroit neighborhoods but also a focus not on just buildings and, and trimming trees and stuff, rebuilding people's lives through uh, fixing up their their neighborhoods. And we'll we'll talk more about that, Chris. But th this Galatians thing that hit me it, it made me think of you because you went into ministry, you became a pastor, and then you then here you are, uh, very successful, leading a philanthropic nonprofit. Uh, urban renewal thing. And I thought, you know what, that's, uh, I mean, there's something different for everybody, but what, let's start with, I was gonna, the question is, it seems to me that verse or not, that that truth hit you somewhere along the line to transfer from a pastor to hands-on, pull up your sleeves and help people. Um, but back up and what was your original conversion? What led you to the faith to begin with? So I grew up in a small town in northern Indiana. And when I say small town, I mean, uh, we didn't have a four-way stoplight until I was in middle school. Uh, and when it came to spirituality, my parents would take my sister and I to church service, maybe, I don't know, 25% of the Sundays of the month or something like that. But we never really talked about God in the home. But for whatever reason, Ever since I can remember, I was this really spiritual kid, and so much so that in eighth grade, classmates kind of informally gave me the nickname Lambert the Jesus Freak, all right? And I wasn't very um, successful at my mission to try to lead everybody to Christianity, but, but that's to say I was very passionate. That lasted up until right before I turned 16, I hit a growth spurt that uh, didn't last as long as I hoped, but long enough to kind of make me a big fish in a small pond when it came to athletics. Now, my high school was a decent size, about 1,100 kids, because three little cities all went to the same high school. But long story short, I completely walked away from my faith at that point because I realized, at least I came to the conclusion that my buddies who were not following God were having a lot more fun than me and my youth group. So I said, goodbye, Jesus. I ran as far and as fast away from him as I possibly could, basically pursuing a lifestyle of drugs, alcohol, girls, and everything I thought was going to make me happy. And I ended up going to Indiana University to study business uh, in 1999. I joined what was the largest fraternity on campus at the time, so I could have more of all the things that I was looking for. And 
you know, life was going pretty good or, or so I thought, but there'd be these nights when I would lie in bed and I would think to myself, wow, this isn't really doing for me what I thought that it would do for me. I'm not as happy as I expect it to be. So my solution to my perceived problem was just to double down and do even more of all the activities that I, you know, had just mentioned. My junior year of college, I decided to move to Australia to study, and I put that in quotation marks, overseas. There wasn't a whole lot of studying going on. But while I was there, I ended up experiencing what I would call a radical encounter with God that changed the whole trajectory of my life. So a couple things happened on that trip. One, I was traveling around and of course, Australia, Southeast Asia, the Pacific Rim. And I began to realize the world was a very big place. And it certainly didn't revolve around my 22-year-old ego. And I also met a couple guys over there who became my closest friends. They happened to be what I would call Jesus followers. But they were pretty fun guys that could go out to a bar, have a few drinks, and go home. And meanwhile, I'd stay out doing all the things they weren't doing. And they kept pressuring me to come with them to their church service. And I was like, no way. And I used a number of choice words, you know, in that <laughs> statement. That's not going to happen, man. I certainly didn't come to Australia to, to meet with, with Jesus, right? And they wouldn't stop. And eventually they just convinced me. And I said, fine, I'll go. And anyway, we go to this little church service and it was okay. I went back a second time. And the third time that I went, I experienced hearing God speak to me for the first time in my life. And it was not an audible voice, but it was more clear than anything I'd ever heard another human being say to me. And that was a climate, well, a, a major crossroads in my life where the biggest transformation that came out of that experience that inspired me was prior to that experience, you know, I lived in a bubble with my, my friends. I loved my parents, my sister, my friends, the girl I thought I was going to marry, but I, 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 I was paying no attention to the rest of the people in the world, I was very self-centered. And um, immediately after that experience, I began to be filled with what I would call like this radical curiosity where I wanted to connect with people, find out about them, get to know them for who they were. And I cared about people. So I moved back to Indiana University before my senior year. And shortly before I left IU to go to Australia, there, was, there wasn't a single Jesus follower in this entire fraternity of 180 guys. Before I got back, and this had nothing to do with, to do with me, my three best friends in the frat had also had these radical encounters with Jesus, plus my drug dealer. So we got this Bible study going in the fraternity. When I came back, we started leading all these dudes to Jesus. And I started thinking about my future. And I realized I don't want to go to law school and become a real estate developer. I just want to help people connect with God. And so I felt like God was calling me to be, to be a pastor. So I moved out to Los Angeles, studied at a seminary out there called Fuller, met the woman who became my wife. We felt led to come to Detroit to start a church. Before we did that, we, we moved to Africa for nine months. Um, and, and, you know, I'll, I'll stop there. But, yeah, it's been quite a journey. Yeah. So. I'm speaking to a youth group in about a week in South Carolina, and I have a list of questions from them. One is, how do you know you're hearing God's voice in the midst of a, basically, to sum it up, in a, a loud world and all the thoughts in your head? So listening to you, you know, you talked about you felt like you had 
a word from God as your friends did. And then you you went on using the terms like, well, then I felt led while you're making major decisions, but not a voice. Could you, uh, for someone asking those kinds of questions, like what do people mean when they're saying that? Um, Well, I want to start with something I believe is a very profound and important truth. So I'll use an analogy right now, anywhere we are in the world, all of our listeners are experiencing every song, every TV station, and literally every bit of information that's going on in on the internet, that's available on the internet, all passing through their them and even their bodies as we speak, right? And mm-hmm. we can tap into those radio stations, those TV stations, and everything on the World Wide Web if we have the right tool set to the right frequency, right? If we have the right radio frequency or the right TV station, or satellite or the right internet connection or whatever. But all of those messages are literally running through our atmosphere 24 seven. And I believe the same thing is true or similar things are true with God. I believe God is speaking to us, his children, and really all of us um, quite frequently. And we're missing what he's saying most of the time because we're not tuned in. And so I believe that First and foremost, hearing from God starts with believing that he does speak and he is speaking to us today. And and I believe that he speaks to us through a wide variety of scenarios. I mean, and we can see it in the Bible, right? God even spoke through the stars to the Magi who uh, ended up finding Jesus. And God speaks in audible voices, which I've never personally heard. He speaks to our heart. He speaks when we're praying. He speaks through the scriptures. Uh, That's his word, you know, from cover to cover. So one of the ways I think we all know when God's speaking is we take whatever we believe he said to the scriptures and and see, does it line up with the scriptures? Because if it contradicts that, then we know that, okay, that's not God, right? Um, And then sharing that with our brothers and sisters in the faith and people who know us well and processing what we think we've heard and asking them, does this this sound like, you know, something you could see? Uh, the Holy Spirit doing in my life. And uh, of course, prayer. And then, you know, looking for uh, praying for discernment and looking for God to continue to lead us that direction. So it's a, it's a wide variety of things, but it always starts with faith, ends with faith, you know, continues with faith. Right. Yeah. I like you brought it back to scripture. I was at a a youth pastors conference years and years ago when I was a youth pastor and uh, there was a pastor of a major church of a mainline denomination. I was just hanging out with them on, on a break time or whatever, talking about hearing from the spirit, having the same kind of conversation. And he says, uh, it was more rhetorical, but he says, so what if you're praying and spending time in God's word and you hear something counter to God's word, a different voice? And I said, well, that's not the voice you want to listen to. And unfortunately, that pastor thought, no, this is a new era. It's a new way to see scripture. Oh, boy. Yeah. So that's interesting. Um, But scripture does say today when you hear his voice. So you're right. Number one is you got to acknowledge that it's happening. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, specifically on the topic today, I want to thank you for spending so much time on this incredibly important truth. Um, When my wife and I lived in Africa for nine months, I lived in a mud hut in a Muslim village with no running water in Liberia, West Africa, amongst some very, very difficult life circumstances. And 
Um, that experience in Africa played a very significant role in helping me see a side and a perspective of Jesus that I hadn't seen as clearly before. And I hadn't been taught when I was younger in the church. And, and, and you know, I came to this conclusion and some people may be a little off, you know, off put by this, but I am absolutely convinced God is biased. <laughs> I am convinced that God is biased toward those who are suffering, those who are downcast, those who are dis disenfranchised, marginalized, um, and, and oppressed, and certainly those who are in desperation, right? And I, and I believe that if we start coming to the scripture, looking to see if that's true, we're going to see it literally from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and particularly in the life of Jesus what became really clear to me in Africa is when I started rereading the Gospels, it just became so evident to me that Jesus was spending the majority of his time with people who were the most marginalized and oppressed. Mm -hmm. I mean, even the Jewish people themselves were among the most marginalized on the whole pl planet, being subjected to the Roman Empire, one of the most vicious empires that's ever existed, and constantly mistreated. But then Jesus didn't stop there, right? He went to the drunks, the prostitutes, the lepers, the outcasts. He went into the red light district amongst, you know, the outcasts, the women who were outcasts. And he was constantly with the poorest of the poor. And he was trying to get his disciples to do the same thing, right? And so my conclusion is this. I don't think that that means that all of us need to pack up right now and move into a mud hut or move into the hood although that may be what God's calling you to do, right? But I do believe it means that all of us are called to invest our time, our talents, our resources in people who are marginalized, oppressed, and suffering. And God loves everybody, right? But even you know, Isaiah 61, um, which was the very first sermon that Jesus preached in his hometown, he starts it off with, um, you know, he, he came to bring the good news to who? to the poor. Right. And he puts an extreme focus on people who are literally poor, financially poor. Sometimes we like to over-spiritualize that and say, oh, well, we're all, we're all poor spiritually, so everybody matters. Look, yeah, we are all poor spiritually. Everybody matters. And God, throughout the whole scripture, is drawing the most close with people who are suffering and um, oppressed and marginalized. So Ken, thank you for for spending this time on this, such an important subject. You never said when you've done it to the best of these, the most comfort of these, the most well-off of these, then you've done it to me. You never said that. Wow. Right? Yeah. It, but there's nothing wrong. There's no respect. God has no respect to persons, but yet Jesus says when you've done it to the least of these, You've done it to me. He never put himself as far as like our behavior towards other human beings in a light of helping him, I think, other than maybe spreading the gospel. But I think the gospel is it's sharing to the least of these, the poor. So they're spiritually poor, which the gospel goes to everyone's spiritually poor till they find the riches of truth. Amen. And then the physically poor. And uh, that's why, I mean, Galatians 2, not to just get stuck on that particular verse, but, you know, 
backing up a little bit, uh, Paul even says something there a couple of verses before that. That sounds almost disrespectful to Peter, James, John, like the, the pillars that spent time with Christ himself. And now they're leading this whole new movement. He's like, uh, some see them as esteemed and they meant nothing, nothing to me. He's like, not them personally, but their status, not that he didn't respect it, really means nothing to me because God is no respecter of persons. But then they turn around and say, remember the poor. They didn't say, hey, remember and honor and esteem Peter. Remember to honor and esteem John. He's like, oh, they're just, remember to respect us because of who we are. So remember to, uh, remember the poor. And not that that's new to me, but you just, the heart of it, like you said, it's all through scripture. And it's easy to look at the Old Testament and go, who is this God? He seems like he's so wrathful and vengeful and he's killing all these people. But a lot of times it's overlooked that uh, he's always showing care and concern and he's always the father to the uh, fatherless and a spouse to the uh, widowed and the orphan. And the New Testament goes as far as to say that that really is our faith, that our true religion comes down to looking after those who are lonely fatherless and and on their own you know and going back to god speaking I, I really believe that everything god is saying to us it fits in one category or the other right it's either a word of challenge or it's a word of invitation and and we can certainly find so many words of challenge in the bible when it comes to caring for the poor i mean the whole parable of the sheep and the goats that that jesus preaches like that that can be a very scary parable right but but there's also so many words of invitation that god is giving us when it comes to caring for the poor and that's what i really want to focus on right now and share from my own experience in that you know we don't we don't change a lot in life when we just operate out of shame or guilt which there is no shame in christ right shame is hating who you are guilt is hating what you've done we may be experiencing healthy guilt around that we're not doing enough for the poor um, but oftentimes that doesn't really motivate us to do something about it. And I, I want to say that the invitation to care for the poor is actually life-giving. And, and it brings so much joy. I can tell you that in the work that I do, I experience receiving so much more joy and fulfillment and happiness from being with people who see life so differently because they've experienced so much suffering and just being with them and learning from them, I really do feel like I experience Jesus in a way that I cannot experience him doing, doing otherwise, right? And so that's one of the things I really want to focus on today is the invitation to greater levels of joy. And so much uh, of our life, I think, in the West is, is trying to escape suffering. It's trying to escape hardship. And so sometimes we try to create these safe bubbles and we wonder why we're, we're, we're lacking happiness, right? And, and I want to just make clear that there is so much joy to be found in being with the people that are experiencing this hardship because Jesus is present in such a unique and powerful way. So I could never leave the work that I'm doing and, and do something else, partly because I know that I would be miserable. And maybe that sounds selfish, but I I, I kind of think that's the way God has wired us, right? That he's, he, I'm so glad that it feels good to do good, right? Because if it didn't, 
then it would be really hard <laughs> to, to do. Well, that. you know what? I mean, I think, you know, scripture, New Testament basically says, how, how, if you don't have compassion on those that are hurting, how can the love of God even be in you? So I think about people that are even listening to this, they're on their treadmill or they're driving in their car or that kind of thing. And I think those that are spirit filled right now, just listening to this coming to the forefront from scripture, they, it's not a mental thing. They have a burning, like, man, what could I do? How could I up the ante of what I'm doing? Maybe I don't have this quite prioritized. And I think those that don't have quite that relationship with Christ or they're living in Christianity, the religion, and not a born again, spiritual person will feel the guilt of the obligation. To me, that's almost a divider. Is doing the work of Christ feel like it's an obligation? Or when I hear the challenge, the Spirit's living in me. The Spirit is going to rise up to the challenge. It almost goes into the voice. Sometimes the voice is um, that feeling. Yeah, I was in Ottawa just last week, and surprisingly amount of homeless, almost zombie drugged out homeless. It was a different, it was really bad. But um, in extensive but as i was walking i was walking uh beautiful grounds of uh the parliament and all common grounds the, the where the senate is most uh, commons but everywhere you know homeless people and you can't help them all and nor are you expected to but sometimes you feel like at, at that time i didn't have any um canadian money on me that i could have helped somebody everyone there spoke french practically And I couldn't communicate with people. But if I'd catch eye with somebody, I would feel like I at least need to share a smile and acceptance that they're a human being and that I'm not just looking down at the sidewalk and moving around. It could be that minimal sometimes just in our daily lives is that God's no respecter of persons. By the grace of God, that could be me. Who knows? Conversations I've had with a lot of them, you'll find out they're World War II vets. Well, not World War II, but like uh, Vietnam vets, or they had this great service and they just had some bad things in their life. But that urge to me, that's a voice of the Holy Spirit that you can deny. Because I think anytime you reach out beyond yourself, that you're not going to get anything back, but you feel this urge to help somebody with no reciprocation coming, that, that that's the Holy Spirit working. Yeah, I I believe there's people suffering all around us, right? In our own backyard. And, you know, you may have listeners right now listening to this podcast who say, that's me. I'm, I'm suffering, right? I'm, I'm um, experiencing poverty or marginalization. And um, we, so we don't have to go necessarily very far to find people who are are struggling. And uh, I do want to say in the work that we do, we're very focused on the city of Detroit because the city of Detroit has experienced unusually high levels of marginalization and oppression historically for quite some time. And um, so because of that, what we believe and the organization I lead is Life Remodeled is that Detroiters have all the talent they need, but many don't have access to all the opportunities they deserve. And so what we do in response to that reality is we repurpose large vacant school buildings into what we would call one-stop hubs of opportunity for entire families to thrive. And we fill these buildings with the best and brightest nonprofits who are moving the needle on youth programs, jobs, 
and health and human services. And then together, we help these organizations collaborate to make true lasting impact, truly revitalize neighborhoods and remodel lives in a significant ongoing way. And the strategy is working. And I'm just so grateful that the city and the suburbs here in Detroit and the surrounding region, there are so many people who are so passionate about Detroit families and children and, and really doing something about it, right? And and back to what you're talking about, we're finding joy in it. There's so much joy. We're learning from each other. We're working together and, and God is there and God is blessing the efforts. Yeah. So give a story or two uh, to back up your, so that's your strategy, the mission, how it works, but put a face on it and a name. And I know that probably if you give an example is how these things grow is if someone receives help, then they're full of joy and wanting to give back. And then that's part of the process, isn't it? That. Yep. Yeah. Well, I won't name any specific names of individuals, right. To, to protect identity. Um, but you know, imagine a, a child who was behind several grade levels in reading and began attending programming here at the Durfee Innovation Society. And, um, not only got to grade level at reading, but, but exceeded in grade level in reading. And then uh, because there's workforce development initiatives right here in our building and his mom was struggling financially and in hopes of uh, attaining a more sustainable livable wage job, she actually found a new job opportunity right here through the program in this building. And now that, that, that family is, is receiving the variety of opportunities that they need to thrive and they're thriving together and and uh, of course telling as many of their friends and family and neighbors about the opportunities that are here and and that's one of the things so unique about this model right because no one nonprofit has all the solutions to society's challenges and take literacy for example as important as that is and it's it's incredibly important it's not the be all the end all though to success we we all have received more opportunities in life than just literacy. But to kind of give you, you know, an, a context of what the challenges we're facing, um, at the school building next door to us, there's about 800 students. And about uh, 550 of them are elementary middle school students. The rest of them are high school students. And just up until recently, only 1%, 1.2% of all the elementary middle school students at this school were able to read at grade level or perform at math at grade level. And let me paint the picture of how serious this is. So many states, including Texas, their number one predictor when the states are deciding how many jail cells to build for the future, their number one predictor is how many students are reading at a third grade level by the end of third grade. Because up until third grade, you're learning how to read. After third grade, you're reading to learn. And it is literally a science that children who aren't at grade level by that time, it, we're creating a pipeline to prison, radically increasing the number of children who will go on to commit crimes or end up in a welfare system or so on and so forth. And, and it's something so basic as literacy that many of us just take for granted. And as important as literacy is, there's so much more to the to success for a family. And so we're bringing families together by offering all these services on one roof because typically, you know, I have to go 
to one location for programming for for uh, you know workforce development. I've got to go somewhere else for healthcare. I've got to go somewhere else for resources for my newborn infant. You come to the Durfee Innovation Society, all of that's there under one roof, and a whole family can come together and thrive together. Yeah, and this isn't a small need. Uh, you may know the stats. I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but the amount of literacy in a city like Detroit. It's, um, right now in the entire city, um, 92% of third graders in Detroit are currently not able to read at grade level at the end of third grade. I knew it was in the 90s. What about like graduation rate? You know that? Well, I don't know graduation rate, but I also want to say that I don't necessarily think graduation rate is the best indicator because there's there's. I mean, I do know of numbers, but there's graduating and then there's graduating with proficiency. Sure. All right. I'm not a fan of just graduating students and moving them on. Right. I, I, I'm a believer in actually educating kids and yeah. them getting the opportunities they need to thrive. And I think Detroit Public Schools is really growing significantly and, 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 and moving in the right direction. And I'm excited about that. Um, but when it comes to literacy throughout the city, actually 50 percent of adults are functionally illiterate in, in the city of Detroit right now. And that's a cyclical impact, right? That if this um, doesn't get remedied now, it just produces the next generation and the next generation of literate challenges. And so there has to be a massive focus on literacy. And we're doing that as a city. So many great resources are happening right now with early childhood education, which is where it starts and um, adult literacy and, and, and job opportunities for adults that can get them out of poverty. And so Life for Model is playing a part in that, but there's so many great organizations and people throughout this city that, that God is really blessing their efforts because again, it goes back to what this, your whole show is about today, God's heart for the poor. And so I get excited when I see brothers like you in the church that are, are bringing out the, the scriptural basis for something that is so important for our whole lives. Right. So you, your book, Next Level Nonprofit, is about to come out. Yes. So and what, does out. That, what does that mean? Um, we've created an operating system that helps nonprofits significantly increase impact and build dream teams and by operating system, I don't mean a software, although I will use software as an analogy really quickly. So if you think about um, the operating system on your computer, if you have a PC, it's Windows. If you have a Mac, it's iOS, right? The operating system is the most important software on the entire device, and it takes extremely complex inputs and programs and makes them very simple, and it integrates everything into a way that your, your machine runs the way you want it to. So people like me can use it. So we can use it, right? But most of us take our operating system for granted. And so we've created a, a, an organizational operating system that consists of four major components. Again, it's not software. It's about these four things. One, team unity. Two, compelling vision. Three, right strategy. And four, discipline execution. And almost imagine a flywheel of these four things that every time you turn this cycle of this flywheel, your organization goes to the next level and the next level after that. And so this book that I've written, it's a step-by-step -step process of how to excel in those four areas. 
and to create a system where you're going to have an incredibly united team with the right people in the right seats. You're going to know how to attract and retain the top talent because who is always more important than how you need the right who's and the right seats. And then you'll, you'll have the right house, right? If you have a United team and um, we teach you how to create a two page strategic plan because either organizations don't have a strategic plan or the other extreme is they have a 20 page plus strategic plan. That's doing a wonderful job sitting on a dust collecting shelf. Uh, I mean, sitting on a shelf collecting dust, sorry. Um, and no one in the organization actually knows what's in that plan. So we teach you how to create a two page plan that everyone will know exactly where their organization is going, exactly how to get there and be excited about it. And then we give you the tools to actually implement this plan on a daily basis. And so this book is going to allow nonprofits to be able to self-implement this system anytime, any place, all over the world. But for organizations who want to go a lot further, a lot faster, they're going to want to hire a coach from Life for Mild to help them implement this model. And just to give you an idea, the, there's, a four, there's several for-profit models out there for for-profit businesses that are all excellent. And the average cost for the kind of services that I'm talking about is fifty-five dollars to $85,000 a year. And, and we've brought the cost down to only $15,000 a year. So we can make it accessible. And to go back to your show here, the, the, the core emphasis, the whole reason we created this system is because the people that our nonprofits serve, that all nonprofits serve, right? The people that we all serve deserve the highest level of excellence we can possibly give them. And so by us helping other nonprofits impact more people in a more significant and healthy and sustainable way, we're going to exponentially bring fruitfulness and, 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 and blessing to people experiencing poverty all over the world. So I'm really excited about what this book is going to mean for um, our, our, our ability to serve God is through serving people more effectively. How do you find and attract top tier people to a nonprofit when those same skills could be used uh, for more revenue or salary in the commercial marketplace? Or is that the, is the question, the answer is that the people you're looking for would gravitate towards you anyway and be willing I guess I'm assuming there's like a pay difference, but how do you get top tier people in a nonprofit? I guess is the question. Well, you know, to keep it 100, um, the nonprofit sector doesn't necessarily have as much talent as the for-profit sector often does because a lot of the top tier talent doesn't want to work in the nonprofit world because the nonprofit world doesn't pay anywhere near what the for-profit world pays. And so in the nonprofit world, you have to be even more targeted to attracting and wooing what we call reindeer, right? Because sometimes we hear in the world of uh, venture capitalists that we want to try to find a unicorn, right? Or if we're looking to, to find an open role in our organization, we, we want to maybe look for a unicorn. Well, unicorns don't exist, right? But reindeers do, and they're almost still mythical creatures, thanks to the story of Santa and his... Uh, is reindeer. And so we say we look for reindeer and reindeer are the top 10% of the job um, pool out there. So for any job that you want to fill the role for, we're saying go out and attract the top 10% most talented, but they have to be team players, 
right? And so there's quite a few steps to not only attracting talent, because it's not enough to get them to, to convince them to come to your organization. You need to retain them. And the more you retain top talent, the stronger your organization will become. And the stronger your organization becomes, the more attractive you are to the top talent. So it, it, it's, it's not a, a one simple, you know, magic pill that you're going to be able to recruit top talent overnight. You, you can only really recruit the level of talent that your organization is, is currently at and healthy. And so it, it's a cycle though. And, and it always starts with wherever you are and coming up with compelling job descriptions that, that attract individuals that clearly define what the role is in a compelling way. And, you know, being very intentional about finding out if these people are the right fit for your organization. And if they are, pay them really, really well. And I, I advocate for paying people at the top end of the salary range in the nonprofit world because they will more than pay for themselves. If you have the best people, they're going to get more work done than if you have one amazing person, they're going to get more work done than two mediocre people, right? And that's going to help you be more effective. That's going to help you even raise more money for your organization. And they're going to want to stay in your organization. It's actually very expensive to lose people. And there's so much turnover in the nonprofit world People are staying often in organizations for one year, yeah, two crazy. years. Mm -hmm. and so the economics of paying people pennies actually costs you more money in the long run. Right. Um, and then once you get them on your team, you got to make sure that you're developing them. You're, you're coaching them well. You're, you're giving them high affirmation and high challenge. And you're creating an environment where people want to stick. To circle back and to kind of close our conversation with the remembering the poor, it's easy to, you know, remember is kind of an odd word. It's, I don't know if we use it that much in the context scripture does like do this in remembrance of me. It's a lot deeper than just remembering something in a, in a thought. So remembering the poor, um, what would be in your mind, whether it's a nonprofit, an individual, faith or not faith that like if they went away with one thing today and they think, well, okay, I'll remember the poor. I just remembered them. I'm done. Or I don't know what to do. It's a, it's a big problem. What's something like practically in our busy lives where we're barely paying our bills or we don't have time to do this or to do that. Can you think of just like a step? I, here's what I want to send our listeners with today is people who are experiencing poverty, they absolutely need your help. They need your access to resources and opportunities that can help them thrive. But here's what I want to leave you with. You need them more than they need you. If, if you're experiencing, uh, you're, you're, you, you're a believer, you love Jesus, and you're wondering, why am I still experiencing empty, emptiness? You know, one of those significant reasons might be you're not spending enough time with people experiencing poverty. And that's just going to be a reality until you figure out that area of your life. And so you need them even more than they need you. And God has some really great joy in store for you when you begin to invest more of your time, talents and resources and, and people that he's so passionate about. Perfect. All right. Great. Thanks, Chris. All right, Ken. I appreciate you, brother. Thank you
counted among the outlaws. He said, come, follow me. People from all walks of life since have been becoming outlaws.